Here we go, another one of these special mini intros just to introduce what we've been watching. This episode was the first one that we released for our YouTube channel and has now been moved to its new permanent home on the What We've Been Watching podcast. So sorry again for mentions of YouTube, but hope you enjoy the four movies. What are your two? Uh, my two are Turner and Hooch, the uh, Tom Hanks dog movie. Classic. And then also Big, the Tom Hanks big child movie very good do i need to guess what your theme is mm, uh I'll, I'll leave it to the listeners to, yeah, if you can challenge. crack that code Ooh. email us in at supervaybros.gmail.com <laughs> is that even worth doing as a joke yeah, yeah it means fine. it's a subtle way laurie to get our email out there early on very clever phil okay and my two i'm only going to give away one because listeners i quite want to surprise phil with the second but i'm going to do youth in revolt a michael Serrad sort of teen drama comedy dramedy thing comedy i think it's meant yeah, to be a comedy i've seen not? that one as well all right, well, do you want to kick us off first, Phil? Okay, my first film is Turner and Hooch. Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on, Hooch. Come Come on. Come Wait a while. Hooch! Hooch! No! Stop! Stop! Hooch! Hooch! Yeah, so this film is the Tom Hanks dog movie. It's about Tom Hanks and a dog, a big, big dog called Hooch. Tom Hanks plays uh, a cop. He's a detective for a very small town, I think in California. I couldn't quite place it. And uh, he's just about to leave his police department and go to the big city where there's real cases. He's impeccable at his job. You know, He tidies impeccably. He files his cases impeccably. The only problem is all of his cases are very much misdemeanors and nothing really meaty to get his teeth into. A couple of days before he's about to leave, uh, a murder happens. Oh, no. And the only witness is Hooch the dog. I knew, I knew you were going to say that. How very ridiculous. What kind of dog is Hooch? Uh, I think it's a very... Um, uh, dog de Bordeaux. Is, it's like one of the oldest French breeds in the world. I'm really impressed that you knew that. <laughs> well done. What I was reading like? the trivia, you know. Um, so it's a big dog. It's got big jowls. It's constantly dribbling. You would hate it, man. It's, would I? <laughs> yeah, like globules of oh, dribble no. coming down. And, and he constantly is shaking his head and fling it everywhere. Tom Hanks loves it? No, he doesn't, Laurie. He hates it because he's all... Turner's all about the cleanliness. He likes his life in nice order. And then there's this big dog, which he has to look after because he's the only witness to the crime. I see. I found out about this movie way, way, way back again, watching Scrubs. I don't know if you remember, there's a little joke where they try and put together two people whose surnames are Turner and Hooch just because they wanted to put together yeah, Turner man, and Hooch. Yeah, and that's my single reference point. Yes. <laughs> so that was the kind of the only reason why I thought, oh, I'll watch this film. And I thought going into it, I was like, okay, Turner, Tom Hanks with a dog really silly just kind of just almost like a kids movie i thought it was kind of a disney version of a detective story yeah yeah man it's not it's like quite serious it's like a proper serious movie but with like the weirdest concept ever <laughs> well cuz how on earth can a dog be a witness i mean is that you is that giving something away no 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 the dog well the dog knows what what things were going on and it kind of it just I mean, when you say nose as in it, it, it knows the baddies it's it's very much a guard dog so it like recognizes different people and right. things like that and also it, it 
it kind of is the idea of like, what would you happen if you've got this dog who can smell things and track down things? Yeah, and yeah. Blah de blah blah. Be honest, I fell asleep a little bit in the middle. No, really, which is really bad. But That's I got the main for you. It's not a problem. It's not a problem. Don't worry. I watched the movie and I enjoyed it. I did enjoy the film. I think it was different than I was expecting. And I think what's really interesting about the film is Tom Hanks isn't the kind of classic Tom Hanks character. I think very, I don't know anyone who doesn't like Tom Hanks, basically. Yeah, we talked and about this. And you feel very warm towards him. He's very lovable, average man who's also a movie star. And he's just very charismatic on the screen. But this film, he is aggressive, angry, kind of bitter, a little bit kind of mean towards um, to his or colleagues Hooch. and things. Yeah, Hooch he's annoyed at. He's constantly yelling. Like Tom Hanks is always yelling at him like, Hooch, don't do that. <laughs> But what's really interesting is it's kind of like, uh, um, what's the word? Uh, a dry run for Woody. That's the kind of character that he's doing. Oh, really? A bitter, sarcastic? I see what you're saying. You know yeah, what I mean? Okay. And like kind of actively being slightly dislikable, um, but still being engaging in, and you know what I mean? Like I do. This, the, the Tom Hanks magic number or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, Hanks factor. One little tip if you are going to watch this movie, don't read anything about it because there's a little bit of a spoiler at the end, which I may have spoiled for myself accidentally. Okay. Yeah. And that's very, even the Wikipedia summary, that kind of thing. Yeah, just kind of, just avoid, if if you're going to watch it, just watch it, pop it in and and try and enjoy the ride. But I still enjoyed it. You've said it's serious. Is it comedy at all or not? Well, it's got some sort of comedy japes in the sense that it's about a dog and like the havoc this dog is putting onto this man's life. But it's about a murder and it's about like sort of a conspiracy and there's a gunfight and all sorts. And it's, it's not sort of tame in that regard. Okay, well, three, three more questions for you. I mean, Turner and Hooch implies that they're partners as opposed to an investigator and a witness. Tell me that the ending doesn't involve them becoming official police partners. I can neither confirm nor deny anything. Interesting, okay. And the second one is, I mean, it, it, <laughs> they're the two main characters, but presumably there are other people involved. Like, who else is acting? So you've it? got Craig T. Nelson, the voice of Mr. Incredible himself. Right. He's the uh, police chief. You've got the guy who uh, is the, the cop in Die Hard as the uh, partner who I think is taking over. Do you mean um, the guy they make fun of for eating donuts? Yeah, he's yeah, really yeah. the most emotional. Yeah, okay. He's like, come on, you can do it, John. Yeah, yeah, the most yeah. heartfelt speech maker. So he's the guy who's replacing Tom Hanks in this uh, small little nothing right, going gotcha. on town. Yeah, so it, it all just kind of works. And you know how you've been talking about 90s movies yeah. um, and action movies that you just feel like there's a quality to them. Mm. This felt very much like kind of, I could see why this has become a bit of a classic and a well-known not the best movie ever, but it just feels warm and you feel like it's got a, a, an assured hand. It's just making a movie and it kind of, it just kind of shakes off that sort of, oh, it's a bit silly because it's a dog movie. It sounds like you thought it worked, basically. Yeah, I had a good time. It wasn't like the best movie ever. I wasn't thinking, wow, this is the best thing ever. I need to tell everyone about it, even though I am kind of doing that now. Yeah, that is what but, you're <laughs> What's the grade? I would give it, I'd give it a solid B, like maybe a B plus even. And for all ages, anyone, just pop it in a bit of interest? Yeah, like just pop it in. I don't have high expectations. It is Tom okay. Hanks and a dog. Um, but it's not the worst thing ever either. Nice one, man. Okay, I've got a final question for you. Is it a bit of a good cop, bad dog kind of movie? <laughs> that's terrible. It's good. I think that's good. That's probably a tag. Well, I'm not going to... Uh, I, I imagine he's putting a leash on the law. <laughs> I'm going to plead the fifth and be yeah, quiet. Yeah, right. Taking crime for a walk. Please stop. <laughs> okay. Uh, thanks, Phil. Okay, my movie, my first one I'll do is Youth in Revolt. And just want to say, listeners, Phil's movies with the Tom Hanks factor there, 
are a bit more jolly. So I'm afraid mine are kind of counterbalancing that and they're slightly less jolly to talk about. You're the bad cop to my good cop. Yeah, yeah. Bad dog. <laughs> leave, it, leave it, leave it alone. Uh, Youth in Revolt is Michael Sarah comedy and it's trying to be a teen, I don't even really know, slightly coming-of-age drama. Basically, he's a slightly gawky, geeky kid at high school. He hasn't had any success with girls and it's because he thinks he's a nice guy. It's the classic most annoying line in history. Why is it the bad guys always get the girls, right? Mm. And that is what this film is about. He goes to a campsite where he stays with his mum, who seems to have a string of terrible boyfriends. And while he's there, he comes across uh, an alluring young girl called Sheeny, played by Portia Doubleday. And it turns out that although she seems like a nice girl, actually she's as much of a sort of trapped soul as he is. And together they start a weird kind of blossoming relationship where the things they do become escalatingly risky and not sensible. My name is Nick. I live with my charming mother. Her latest boyfriend, Jerry, is a pathological liar. If a woman answered the phone, it was probably just a maid. He's a real prize. <laughs> my dad is currently in between jobs. Lacey is dad's girlfriend. Lacey, come near you. It's amazing how much action everyone around me seems to be getting, with one exception. Honey, this is Sheeny Saunders. She just stopped by to introduce herself. Isn't that neighborly? For Nick, Sheeny was the one. Would you mind applying this to my exposed areas? Sure. Until she became the one who got away. Sheeny, I think I love you. Nick, you're very nice, but I have a boyfriend. Hello, Nick. Bad break, Nick. Well, I'll be leaving. Now, to win her over, he'll have to give love. I've decided to create a supplementary persona named Francois Dillinger. Bold, contemptuous of authority. Thanks for breakfast. Where are you going? And irresistible to women. You're not going to get this girl by sitting around listening to records. It's time to rebel, Nick. It's time to be bad. So I suppose you can get a little bit of the tone from that trailer. I think this movie is quite surprising. I watched it thinking, oh, maybe this is going to be a little bit like Superbad or Scott Pilgrim, but with a slightly more dramatic edge to it. But it isn't really that. And to be honest, I'm struggling to think what it is. I found it a bit smug, Phil. Like the whole way it's narrated by Michael Cera as well as acted by him. And the whole way his kind of fake French alter ego who does all these very... Francois, right? Francois, yeah, yeah, who does all these terrible things to win the girl's heart. The whole way that emerges just becomes a bit annoying. It's, it's funny because by the end of the film, it's a bit clearer what it's trying to do. And it's trying to tell a sort of absurd fairy tale, so much so that it becomes a bit of a metaphor. But I wish they had signposted that earlier on in the movie because instead it's played like a kind of New York neurotic love tale coming-of-age tale, and I just found myself getting really irritated at this self-obsessed character. And that's interesting you mentioned that, because I, I, well, I, mean, I saw this ages ago, so it's slightly foggy in my mind, but I remember being frustrated because it was just going to really bleak places and really, like, horrible scenarios. Yeah. Which is fine if it is, like, a fable or a, a sort of fairy tale type, type story, but because the film feels quite grounded initially, it just feels like, oh, this is a nightmare, like, yeah. a horrible situation... And it was very hard to enjoy. That's what I found. Yeah, exactly. And it also, the girl, this Portia Doubleday's character, Sheeny, is like offensively philosophical in all the things that she says. So much so I just thought, oh, these kids just... Shut up. Yeah, really. And I I did. And it's funny because occasionally that kind of thing works, doesn't it? And you think, oh, they are on the edge of things and they are thoughtful. This one, I just thought it was the most cliched way 
of showing outsiders in the teen world and pandering to the sensation that everyone has that only they really understand the world as it should be and yeah, I guess it kind of gets turned on its head towards the end, but the journey there wasn't an awful lot of fun. What do you think of Michael Sarah? I'm not a massive fan of him, I don't think. No, he's a slightly odd guy to cast in any film. <laughs> <laughs> his perfect role was in Arrested Development, where he's spot on. Yeah. But I didn't mind him, actually. I thought his Francois, you know, Francois is this daredevil guy with the moustache. I think yeah, that was okay. His awkwardness is fine. The, the thing that lets him down time and again, sadly, is the fact that it's just so unlikely any of these girls would end up kind of fancying him, especially when they already have a boyfriend. Do you know what yeah. I mean? It's hard to overcome that leap because he is so distinctive. But on his own terms, I thought he was fine. Portia Doubleday was, was quite good, I thought. I just really loathed her character, basically. One other thing to add is that have you ever watched the TV sitcom Rules of Engagement? Yes, I have, yeah. I think that it's got its moments, that one. It's quite average, but it certainly has its moments. Um, Timmy from that show the british uh, assistant mm. who's always mistreated is in this film as a kind of friend of michael Sarah's, who's quite bookish but al- but also trying to make headway with girls he is quite funny in this movie he was almost a highlight he only he appears quite towards the end and has a very short scene but he achieved all the things i thought Michael Sarah and Portia Doubleday did not achieve in this film so do you think uh, i'm getting the sense that maybe if it had a different cast do you reckon it could have worked No, it needed a different script and it needed to take itself a bit less seriously. The overall feeling I came away with was, I get what this movie is trying to say, I just don't like it and I wish it hadn't bothered. And it just wasn't funny enough. I did chuckle at some of the sort of awkwardness of teenage love, but not enough to make it worth sitting through, really. There was one joke which did stick in my mind, which made me laugh, was when he was leaving and uh, he, he was just having breakfast and he taps the table twice and he just flicks over his cereal bowl with all the milking and stuff yeah. like that. That made me laugh because I thought, okay, this works. Like he's being a bad boy and yeah, it's just so true. tame. So yeah, I would probably give it a, a C plus. C plus, that's quite low, isn't it? Well, it's just, it's not that much fun to watch. Did that's you have problem. higher expectations going into it? I think I just had different expectations. I'm not a massive fan of those films anyway. I'm not massively into Superbad. I know you love it, but yeah, so C plus, that'll okay. do. Now, Laurie, what should we do? Because I'm going to do my happy-go-lucky big and you've got your... Mis- Don't worry, it's a surprise. It's, okay, not, it's so- not a downer, it's just a bit more serious. Okay, cool. Okay, well, let's crack on then with Big. For Josh Baskin, life was a little unfair. Until he made a little wish. I wish I were big. Twentieth Century Fox presents Tom Hanks. Big. I turned into a grown-up, Mom. I made this wish on a machine, and it turned me into a grown-up. So now what? You get a job. And I get a job. I play with all of this stuff, and then I tell them what I think. And they pay you for that? Suckers! You're only young once. This is important. I'm your best friend. What's more important than that, huh? It just might last a lifetime. You'll never forget Tom Hanks. So, da, 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 da. I know, that's the wrong tune. <laughs> okay, keep going. Isn't that chopsticks or whatever? No, no, I just meant you got the wrong pitch. Oh, so, oh, you know. Okay. Oh, I feel sad then. <laughs> Why do you do this? You always put musical things in for me to do and I just fail. Everyone loves it. Everyone's <laughs> chuckling. 
So, Big, I'm sure probably there's a lot of people listening who have seen it. Uh, I've watched it as a classic movie from uh, being a kid. Um, I watched it thinking, oh, this will be great. Big's nice and warm. I love Big. You know, Tom Hanks being a big kid. Great movie. And then, yeah, as I was watching it, I suddenly realised there's all this stuff that I just did not pick up on. When you were a kid? Uh, yeah, as oh, a child. Big time, like, yeah. There's so much stuff that just goes way over your head. Um like a lot of sort of adult stuff. I know. It's, it's a much better film to watch when you are young, so you're not troubled <laughs> by those things. Yeah, but then in some ways that kind of works in the films, uh, to the film's advantage, you know. Uh, let, me, let me just uh, keep people up to date if you haven't seen the film. Tom Hanks plays uh, this little kid, Josh. 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 Who... That's a good point. That's the ending scene, isn't it? Josh. <laughs> <laughs> Don't swear. Sorry. Okay. Um, so Josh is a little kid. Uh, he's... he's Kind of classic kid. He's got his little friend, and uh, they're they're sort of playing baseball, playing cards, all sorts of little japes that you get up to when you're a kid. And he's got eyes for this girl who's uh, older than him, who's taller than him, taller than him. Yeah, awkward. And he goes to a fairground uh, one day, and he sees this girl, and he thinks, right, I'll go impress her. And uh, he joins this line for this roller coaster. And he's told when he finally gets up to the to the to take the ride, he's not tall enough. He's not big enough to go on the ride. And he has to embarrassingly leave. Oh, can you imagine? I mean, that that's a really well done scene, isn't it? Because his shame is that you feel it right in the pit of your it's, stomach. It's complete shame and just sort of that disheartened. He's 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 left feeling ashamed and also he's completely failed to impress this girl. And then uh, as he's sort of walking around very miserable, he comes across a Zoltar machine, which is pos- terrifying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's this properly creepy sort of arcade game thing. Where you shove a coin in and you have to try and get it into this this devil's mouth sort of thing, and uh, he it tells him to make a wish and he makes a wish. I wish I was big, and then he leaves, and then we finally have the introduction of Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks is the big version of Josh. He plays the what thirty year old version. Yeah, about that. Overnight, he's suddenly turned into a man. He's got his wish. He's got his wish, and he's big. But of course. His his mum doesn't recognise him. His whole family's like, what's going on? There's this, where's Josh? It's just this old man in the house. Well, this is one of those moments. As a kid, you think, oh, this is a bit funny because she doesn't realise it's her son. As an adult, you're thinking, how awful would it be if like she in the pulls middle a of knife life? on him? <laughs> yeah, like, I know. And like even like even as a kid, like it's played, I think, right. But they get the tone right throughout the whole movie, which is this is fun. This is a kids movie. Yeah, it yeah, is, yeah. It's a family film, but underneath all of this is the real subtext of like this mum's just lost her child yeah and uh, so josh has to leave he has to go and he goes to the big city with the help of his little friend who's still his little friend called billy and uh they go to new york and that's where they hide out while they try and figure out how on earth they're going to get josh back to his regular child self in the meantime though they're left with this problem josh is in new york he's got no money yeah what's going to happen he's got to eat yeah, he's got to he's got to he's got to eat to live. Got to steal to eat. <laughs> I know, every time I always think that stuff. Keep going. Yeah. Uh, and so he decides to get a job, and uh, and here comes all the classic sort of japes and fun little. Oh, things. He doesn't love. It. He goes to work for a toy company and is rising through the ranks because he understands what fun is. Exactly, he is. Well, he's a he's a little boy. He's just got a man's body. Yeah. So yeah, this film it has so much warmth to it. The tone is impeccable. The music is fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Really, really sync. Howard Shore, I think, did the music. Oh, really? Lord of the Rings, man. Yeah, and he does a fantastic job it, because it really guides you through so that all of the emotional beats really hit home. The, the sad parts, the happy parts. The There's a fantastic scene on the first night 
where Josh is in New York City, he's staying in like this horrible motel in New York. Mm. And it really just hits that moment really well because he's just, he's left alone because Billy has to go home to his parents, obviously. Just the misery, yeah. And he, he locks the door and his sheets are kind of horrible. Yeah. He hears a gun, like gunfire outside oh. and he just pulls the blinds down and then he kind of curls up. So this is Tom Hanks, curls up and just cries. And it just works. Like you just feel oh. for him and you think that would be terrifying. But as a kid, still those little sort of moments just fly over your head. You're like, oh, it's fine. He's fine. Yeah. And so I feel that this film, the reason why it's such a classic family film is because it works on two levels. You've got the kid element, which is, oh, wow, he gets to work at a toy store and he gets to design his own toys and like he gets to be an adult and he, he kind of fills his apartment with all this sort of stuff, all the toys and bunk beds and trampolines. And there's that sort of wish fulfillment element to a kid who really, this is what it would be like to be big. But then for an adult watching it, you get all this sort of drama, really, because yeah. he, here's this guy who is out of place. He doesn't really understand what's going on. He doesn't really understand what, what how people are talking to him and interacting with him. Uh, the film starts to get a little bit... <laughs> I mean, yeah. There are some troubling things, as you would expect, because there's a love interest. Isn't there's there? a love interest who is a 30-year-old woman. But he's what's a, her name? Because she was in. She's a sort of family film favorite. And when I was a kid, I you know totally fancied her and stuff. Really? Yeah, I did. Mm. I, when I, as a kid, yeah, that's what I mean. She kind of she hits the sort of that mark. I don't quite know how to describe that role. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so uh, her, I think her the actress's name is Elizabeth Perkins. I think. Oh, it is. that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and she is one of the executives at this toy company that Josh ends up working at. And she she's a really interesting character because again, I didn't pick up on this. She is kind of has a bad reputation at the company yeah she does she's, she's dating around the whatever to get to the top yeah and she seems very severe and actually quite calculating and yeah like she's a very odd character to have in a family film she's a very mature character and yeah it, it, the film's really well served by that contrast between the seediness and the inevitability of grown-up life versus being dropped in there without all that kind of nastiness it's just totally innocent and take without all the come. the worry about how you come across yeah and, exactly which is exactly what have exactly what kids have isn't it that's the thing they're not so worried about i mean that they well yes yes and no because the whole film the premise of the entire film rests on josh being concerned that he does look s- stupid it, yeah but it's, it's it's his naivety isn't it yeah, the yeah, naivety yeah. of actually understanding how these social functions work yeah yeah is that is always the source of the humor and the fun which is just great so when um his girlfriend stays over and they just sleep on the bunk beds and, yeah, right. and he gives her a compass as like a little toy it's a glow and they compass. jump on trampolines don't they yeah it's just it just works brilliantly and the thing is as a kid again you don't pick up on that you don't really get the real meaning of what's going on but as an adult, you, of course, know exactly what uh, Elizabeth Perkins' character is expecting. Oh, yeah. One and of my it... favourite scenes, man, on all this is when he turns up to that uh, meet and greet at work in the <laughs> sparkling white suit. <laughs> Everyone's like, nice, nice suit. It's perfect. That's great. There's so many moments. And, of course, there's, I, it'd be, I'd be, what's the word, remiss to not talk about... The keyboard scene. The keyboard scene. Mm. You knew exactly where I was going. The, the giant piano where they step on the keys. Is that a genuine, iconic cinema moment, like, of all time? Yeah, and it's a it's a brilliantly observed moment because they the it's a real keyboard that you can play. I've played it in New York. It's a very famous Toy Story in New very York. Good. Uh, but the actual keyboard is a lot smaller than the one used in the film. And ah. so the director Penny Marshall, uh, she was like, "Right, we're going to use this. It's going to be br- brilliant, but we need to have a massive, massive keyboard." So they built an extra big one so that they could play those particular songs. And interestingly, like uh, I read uh, that the two actors, the the CEO of the toy company and Tom Hanks. 
they they practiced the dance routine, but they noticed that there was two people ready to take over if they couldn't perform the dance. Oh, really? And they resolved to make sure that they were the ones who did it. Nice. And they did. It's a brilliant scene. It's just so much fun. And it and of course, it, there's that sense in which you wish you were Tom Hanks playing that keyboard and just having fun on it. It's just a brilliant movie. It is brilliant. I agree completely, Phil. I always would say, I cannot imagine somebody who wouldn't like it. No, and I got to flag up. I think Tom Hanks's performance. It's easy to say, sure, it's not that hard to play a kid trapped in a, an adult's body because you just do everything with a kind of wide-eyed innocence, right? I think it's so much more nuanced than that when Tom Hanks does it. I think it's the best performance of that kind I've ever seen. If you look at his eyes, his facial expressions, and in particular the shrugs that he does, he plays everything perfectly. He captures the awkwardness of like a teenage boy in his body, especially in a body that's way too big for him and he hasn't quite figured out how to use yet. And then the expressions and the and the dodgy eye contact. There's one particular scene. I'm thinking I can picture it exactly. I wish I could remember the scene better. But his face and the shrug that he does when someone asks him a serious question, you just think that is a little boy right there. Tom Hanks absolutely nails it, doesn't he? He really, really does. And the film wouldn't work if he didn't nail it. Do you know what uh, the, uh, the contrast I can think of is 13 going on 30. Have you seen that film? Yes. Je- um, Jennifer Garner, isn't it? Yeah, so she, she's a, a 13-year-old girl who wishes that she'd be 30. 30, flirty and thriving. <laughs> <laughs> Horrible. And But interesting, that film is her jumping ahead to when she is 30 right, and everyone else is 30 as but well. But she, she hasn't carried with her her adult. Like she's still 13 years old in her mind, isn't she? Yeah, but the world isn't isn't yeah. shocked by her being old, which no. is a, a key difference, I think. But I, it just interested me that her performance there as a 13-year-old girl trying to be a 30-year-old woman, I thought Jennifer Garner didn't do that very well. I think she had a very dead eye stare. And she, yeah, I think I basically think, the comparison is quite revealing. I'd yeah, say. because I think the thing with her is... Uh, she just goes for wide-eyed. She never really convinces you about the, the, the complexity of a child's mind. Yeah, right. Because I think oh, that's the thing. Tom Hanks really gets that there's multiple emotions going on. Well, and on. They, kind of, they don't know how to handle situations. It's not that they do just handle them in a childlike way. It's that they, they actually don't know what to do a lot of the time. And that's what Tom Hanks communicates, I think. Uh, one little warning. If you are going to watch this film and you haven't seen it before and you think, oh, we'll put it off, pop it on with the kids or something like that, there is a sort of love scene. Yeah, there is. And that is a little bit weird. And there's a fantastic moment, though, which I think is so funny. Um, she turns off the lights and immediately just turns off flicks again. it back on. It's so funny. <laughs> and it's just done perfectly. Like, That's it true. is done perfectly. But it is a bit of an awkward scene, which I don't remember when I was a kid. No, but I think it just completely passes you by as a kid and you don't think about any of the implications at all. It is a bit weird to watch as an adult, but it is surprising. What's the name of the director again, sorry? Penny Marshall. I would say the film is almost perfectly judged in every respect. And even that scene, which is weird, she still manages to make it work, doesn't she? Yeah, she definitely does. She definitely does. One little final fact of trivia, and then I'll give it a grade. It was uh, written and conceived by Anne Spielberg, the sister of Steven Spielberg. How about that? And uh, it was suggested that he would direct it. And then he realized that if he directed it, it would become his movie. And so the reason why he didn't direct it was because he wanted it to be for his sister. Do you know what? I'm kind of glad he didn't do it. It would have been a very different movie, I think. Do you think so? I think the concept is really strong. The script is really good that... I kind of would be curious to see how Stephen would have done it. Mm, interesting. Me and my best mate, Stephen. Stevie. <laughs> right. Good old uh, Stevie S. Let's not. I mean, no surprise. I'm going to give it an A. Yeah, I'm completely agreeing with you, man. The music in that final scene when he's looking back is uh, pretty awesome. I almost wish we could do like a spoiler on Big because there's yeah, so much in that movie, yeah, which yeah, is yeah. just great. Couple of, it hit Tom Hanks' mum in that film 
whatever whoever the actress is is also brilliant really important grounding role for the drama i'd say all right we could go on an ages and ages we really could yeah, we really sorry, could and i always good? thought maybe we should do a cheese or wine on this one yeah because it definitely stands up doesn't it, it stands up but at the same time there's no way this movie would be made like this that is true because there's so much stuff which is like now an absolute hot topic for yeah. our culture like a missing kid is like the biggest thing ever and yeah. the movie just kind of flies over it all it sort of makes it not a joke of it yeah yeah okay let's stop there <laughs> okay uh thanks phil good one all right my final one phil is called the kingdom of dreams and madness Do you know what that is no that is a documentary following studio ghibli as they prepare to release um the wind rises and the tale of the princess kaguya wow already i wish i've seen this i know and the reason i wanted to surprise you with it is because i never watched these kind of films this is this is phil's territory the whole documentary what, the one film. where i pull out some magical film which makes me sound super cool yeah i'm really sort of intellectual <laughs> i like just adventure films <laughs> not, you know but I, I mean i love studio ghibli so this one was a real treat um i'll just play a clip from the trailer here これ大事じゃない。<笑><笑> Yeah, listeners, I mean, I'm sorry. There's quite a lot of spoilers in the dialogue there, that I'm sure. <laughs> uh, well, I really, really enjoyed this documentary, not just because I'm a Studio Ghibli fan, but just being able to look inside one of those studios. Do you remember watching that film, The Reluctant Dragon? Yeah, with Disney back in the 50s, I think it was, wasn't it? And yeah. the amazing process they went through to score and do sound design and do the animation it's funny how in the new age of movie making, even in an animation studio, it, it just looks like an office, this place. And there's just desks, like hot desks, open plan offices, but people are doing sketches in a very enclosed environment. It, it's fascinating to see a modern day animation studio. That's just a side note, really. I, I think this film, it is very revealing. It's very enjoyable. The pace is very slow. As a documentary, perhaps it's worth saying, I don't know how good a documentary it is because it doesn't particularly give all that much away it's very much that the filmmaker Mami Sunada I think is her name just got granted access to come in she asks them and, they, and she just pops in and has a camera there the entire time captures pretty much everything and the chronology is decided by the, the film's release schedule so they just as they make progress the film just goes on so it's not particularly storytelling it's not particularly featureized so there aren't little really mini segments particularly it's more like fly on the wall yeah and it's quite atmospheric so for some people they might find that quite boring because it's quite slow paced and there's a lot of the minutiae and the trivia of stuff and he just is in love with this with Miyazaki basically as I think everyone in Japan is and in you know anyone yeah, who yeah. loves cinema is too so you get a lot of him doing his thing and that is kind of um, a recommendation and a warning for people because if you have a slightly treasured and romanticized idea Studio Ghibli, then this film will take that away, probably. And I think that's a really good thing, personally. And I can't believe, actually, some of the things that get said on camera. I'm amazed that that got clearance from the studio themselves. I'm sure they had final say in what went out and what didn't. Well, in terms of like the controversy of kind of the comments of Miyazaki? Yeah, well, or? just, yeah, so Miyazaki, for example, you know, um, 
Isao Takahata is one of the directors in Studio Ghibli and he and Miyazaki it's revealed their sort of background they worked together on various projects and then eventually they became the sort of major players right but there's clearly quite a lot of rivalry between them and Miyazaki says some extraordinary things like at one point he says this guy's got a personality disorder and they're very very candid uh, about the working practices and the people involved they say of the guy Takahata did Princess Kaguya they said he's trying not to finish his film and there's loads of scenes about how delayed it's becoming and how slow he is wow you know, and, and so they're very very candid about it and for me I, I love that because that is filmmaking isn't it filmmaking is can be tedious it can be quite like any office it can be the schedules get delayed there's endless press meetings you see the producer a fantastic producer you get to see a producer really producing knitting together all these disparate elements trying to help people get on well keep them on schedule keep the budget rolling helping over. produce the film yeah, a guy called suzuki it's not that glamorous it's just he gets on with the job and there's another producer who's much younger who works with Takahata who just looks exhausted and a bit frustrated the entire time. Gosh, okay. So, but then I love that. There's also even uh, the casting of the guy who plays the voice of the main character in The Wind Rises, this historical aircraft designer. And they go through all these actors and they say, oh, it's rubbish, it's rubbish, it's rubbish. And then Miyazaki just comes up with a name out of thin air in a meeting that turns out to be, uh, I think, a director or producer from their own studio, not, not a voice actor at all. And they make him do some screen tests and you get to see that happen as well. And I'm trying to, hopefully I'm giving you a bit of a picture of the sort of messiness of this documentary. It is juxtaposed with still shots of things like trees and, <laughs> and lots of very peaceful piano music. But the major thing that it does is build a portrait of Miyazaki as a bit of an unhinged genius, basically. So that it becomes clear that the way these films are made, everything goes through him. So it's not just that he directs it and accepts suggestions. It's like he literally storyboards everything. You see amazing shots of him drawing fantastically the storyboards on paper, like doing pencil sketches and then watercolours and then handing them to his animation department, getting annoyed with them when they can't make his vision happen, wow. that sort of thing, You're giving them motivational speeches which aren't really speeches. They're sort of this kind of speech where they go, you know, like Ian McKellen in Extras, when he says, you are not really John, you just need to pretend to be John. And it's a joke because he's terrible at telling people how to act. Yeah. Miyazaki is a bit like that in real life. Really? He's kind of there saying... Just draw better. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And yeah, yeah. I, yeah, he reminds me of CEOs that I've worked for in the past. These people who, you know, there's so much introspection that he lets out in front of the camera. He you know, muses on life, death and everything else. It seems to be quite a depressive character mm. and almost seems to believe that all his thoughts are like gold dust, while at the same time being self, very self-deprecating and calling himself a fool. And it's it's like the whole thing just exists in his mind. Do you, am I am I painting a picture? Yeah, of yeah, yeah no, very confusing? much. I think it's very interesting because I think it's funny, and probably this documentary, if I watched it, would confirm my suspicions. Um, in Western audiences, he's kind of known as the, the Dreamweaver, yeah. the Japanese oh, Disney. Walt Disney, yeah. And it's like he's always hated that moniker, and he's always kind of rejected it and said, "No, what are you talking about?" And I think it's it's kind of our prejudice, basically, that cartoons are for children and. I don't think Miyazaki would ever say that. I think some of his cartoons are, well, some of his animations are. But... It's very interesting you said it because he makes a comment on exactly that in this documentary. He says, well, I'm making films for children and yet this is not a children's story. He makes lots of comments. He constantly comments on his work. Uh, yeah, it's, you're right. He's not really, in the sense that Walt Disney very much controlled the studio. He is like that. Everything goes through Miyazaki, but I suspect their personality types are rather different. Mm. He clearly lets business people deal with the business things. And he absolutely controls the imagination and, and art direction and stuff. Do you think it's enriched your views of some of his films then? Yeah, I love it. I think the films are more magical for knowing that they're made by a team of incredibly hardworking, stressed out people. I, 
I think that makes it much more of an achievement. And it's been really fascinating to see some of the comments that are out there on the internet. People are genuinely disappointed when they watch this film because they want to believe that Miyazaki is this sort of Father Christmassy jolly figure who's just, you know, a magical person. And I just, like, he's a, just a guy. He's a very talented bloke. But like everything else in the world, it's hard work. There are frustrations. There are things that go wrong. People get treated badly. People get treated well. It's just a mish- mishmash of stuff. It's interesting because probably the people who want to watch it and see this sort of whimsy of this behind-the-scenes studio, they're thinking of when you sort of see behind-the-document, behind-the-scenes uh, vignettes or whatever on DVDs of Pixar films. Oh, sure. Where it is that sort of sense of, oh, this is so fun and we're always we're scooting around the halls on our little scooters and things yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. And I've never got that sense, but I agree with you, and I haven't seen this film, obviously, but I, it makes me want to see it even more. Because... You really want, it's just great fun. If you love the studio, you'll, you'll really enjoy it, I think. Yeah. Did you, did you find that you learned about filmmaking? Yeah, I did. I think particularly the editing process. Uh, I mean, you said about the Benjamin Button thing. You loved hearing uh, David Finch's documentary, uh, or no, commentary, wasn't it? Yeah. And saying we run out of money at this point. It gives, in particular, timing is massively important here. Like you see decisions get made because they've got, you know, a press conference coming up or they've already set the release date. They just have to hurry up with it. And like the ending of the film, um, uh, or The Wind Rises, just changes on a whim, basically. No way. Yeah, there's so much in it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's funny. It's a hard one to talk about because it's quite unstructured. But my overall impression was that it was fantastic. I suspect it will disappoint people who want to believe Studio Ghibli is something else. Right, interesting. What grade would you give it then? Probably an A-. minus. I loved it. I'd happily watch it again. Wow, okay. And just remind everyone what it's called again. The Kingdom of Dreams and Madness. Well, that's it, isn't it? We're done. How about that? It's weird. I, I hope this works really well on YouTube. It's funny, listeners. I mean, if this comes out a bit weirdly, it's because we're used to doing it as a podcast download, uh, and it may even be out on the podcast this week. We haven't really decided yet. But hopefully you enjoyed it. Let us know what you thought. Subscribe. <laughs> that's all we can say now. <laughs> like, comment. Yeah, all that sort of stuff. And do share it if you enjoyed it. And feel free to send us an email with your thoughts, superbellybros at gmail.com or on Twitter at superbellybros. Or, you know, just write a comment underneath. Yeah, that'd be great. And, uh, yeah, check out the podcast as well, www.superbaileybros.com. I don't think it's www.actually. Just type in superbaileybros.com in your browser and you'll find us. And you can subscribe in a whole load of different ways. iTunes, I don't think you can do Stitcher. I won't say that because I'll just (laughs) expose my ignorance. We've been submitted to every podcast.